Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to The Moon Underwater. I am the landlord, John Robbins, and to my left, the esteemed regular, the lovely, the lovely Robin Allender. And this week, our guest is booze author and master of malt editor, Henry Jeffries, whose book, Empire of Booze, tells the story of British history through its importation, exportation, invention, drinking, consumption, lawmaking, pretty much everything to do with alcohol. And uh, it's been a fascinating read. Also fascinating to chat to him about his dream pub. So far, we've got Timothy Taylor on draft, Kentish Pip High Diver Cider, 4.8%, also on draft. And in the bottle section, a couple of curveballs, Campari and Martini Rosso for the construction of a Negroni in memory of Uncle Peter. And it's an old Victorian gin palace or country pub, which doesn't need too much food. It doesn't need cocktails. It doesn't need a wine list, but it does need a fire and some dogs. Before we continue to kit it out, we must return to the Moon Underwater pub quiz, which we have, I'm afraid to say, predicted to be a low scoring round. Well, Well, let's see how we did. This week's Moon Underwater pub quiz was about nicknames for English football teams. And question one, which team currently languishing in the National League North are nicknamed the Quakers? Henry, what, what do you think? Yeah, I've no idea. I mean, I was just trying to think of what part of the country is, you know, where are there lots of Quakers? And I was thinking, you know, the kind of the Cadburys and the you know the Round Trees, you know, all those chocolate people. Mm. They were all Quakers, weren't they? But then Birmingham and places like that they're all in a bit higher up in the leagues aren't they so somewhere and it's it was in a one of the kind of lower leagues from the north wasn't it um oh i haven't got a clue i'm afraid sorry john i've just had a little thought it's just dropped into my head i wonder if there might be a little allender connection to this one there is i'm afraid oh but it's unfair advantage yeah but i only just thought that uh is it darlington it is Darlington, yeah. yeah, which is where my dad's from, yeah. 
the Quakers, yes, the, the re- religious movement had a historic influence on the town, so Darlington are known as the Quakers. Their badge has a little Quaker hat on it. And something else, what else is on the Darlington badge? I have to look it up now in my mind, sorry about this. Some porridge oats? <laughs> oh, a steam train, of course. Question two, which premiership team is nicknamed the Cherries? Henry. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get this either. <laughs> Sorry. I should have done um, Kings and Queens like I did with Dan Snow. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of, you know, cherries. Do they do they wear... Is their kit red? Who has red kit? Well, it's not Manchester United. It's not Liverpool. It's not Southampton. I don't know. Sunderland, maybe? This is the only one I know. It's Bournemouth. It is Bournemouth, yes. Are they in the Premier League? They are, yeah. Good old Bournemouth. (laughs) (laughs) Their home colours are red and black, so it was to do with the kit, which was inspired by AC Milan. And some say that's the reason for the nickname. Others claim it's because Dean Court was built adjacent to some cherry orchards citation needed. So question three was which London club, and it's a Premier Club, Premiership Club again, was nicknamed the Pensioners and even had a pensioner on their badge until the 1950s. Henry? Well, it has to be Chelsea, doesn't it? Henry's gone Chelsea, John? I've also gone Chelsea. It is Chelsea. Yes, uh, of course, that's because the um, army pensions were administered by and paid from the Royal Hospital Chelsea, which is why all army pensioners were often referred to as Chelsea pensioners. So despite your your doubts, you, you, you did... John, you got three out of three then. Yeah, and it's a mixture of knowledge, educated guesswork, and I think divine inspiration <laughs> that's uh, seen me rack up a full house there. Superb yeah. area for the pub quiz. Yes, it's a, it's a classic one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, team nicknames. And we look forward to another one of those next week. But we return to Henry's Pub. Henry, your book talks a lot about spirits, especially gin and whiskey. And the the chapter on on gin is is quite something because it really ties into social history as much as anything. So I look forward to your spirit choices. What are you going for first? Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to narrow it down. I thought I I need a whiskey in there and I need a gin in there because you've got to have a good whiskey and you've got to have a good gin. I'm not really that interested in having anything particularly rare or unusual. I just want something that I enjoy drinking. So probably for whiskey, I'd go for Johnny Walker Black Label, just because I really like it. Not only do I like it, it's also there's a sort of kind of romance, I think, about Johnny Walker Black Label. There's that. I love the idea that Johnny Walker Black Label is this is this kind of currency. Like you read books about, Syria or something in the 1950s or even more recently and it was always like a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label that opened deals you know that you would be stopped by soldiers at a checkpoint and then you'd produce a bottle of Black Label and suddenly everything would be fine so I like the idea of Johnny Walker being this kind of global currency and it's just it just looks great black bottle gold on it and it tastes wonderful. So it's sort of, and it, it makes me feel kind of glamorous when I drink Johnny Walker Black Label, as if I'm in like a fancy bar in Beirut or something, drinking with some hard, hard-bitten American journalists. There is something of the night about Johnny Walker Black Label, <laughs> to steal Anne Widdicombe's phrase, which did for Michael Howard. 
you can imagine it the rat pack having quite a lot to do with Johnny Walker Black Label. You can imagine it being smuggled into a sort of uh, an American military base bar. Mm. It does seem to have such a strong association with America. I always assumed it was an American whiskey mm. for for ages, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know why that is. I mean, it's probably just it is the marketing in some ways, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's very clever, Johnny Walker, because most other whiskies, especially in the sort of heyday of scotch in the early 20th century, they marketed themselves as Scottish. So there were lots of Tartan and Brigadoon and Walter Scott and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Johnny Walker's never really done that. It's always just been Johnny Walker with that man who you thought of as as Johnny Walker with these sort of witty adverts. So it's kind of, it's global, even though it's Scottish, it doesn't feel Scottish. It feels American or, which I think has been very clever. So people in America can think of it as their own and people in India think of it as their own. It's 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 one of those ones that is at home anywhere. So it's it's the sort of I suppose the perfect international whiskey. I once bought a bottle of Johnny Walker Red from my supermarket, and I remember that <laughs> there was someone had left their shopping list. So there was there was like three rows of Johnny Walker Red with one of them missing. So someone had taken one out, and there was a shopping list there, <laughs> and it said booze, Rizzler, potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> What more do you need? What yeah. more do you need for a lovely evening? I believe that's a meal deal as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Johnny Walker Black Label first up, and what would be your second spirit? I'm guessing a gin. Now, I've been thinking quite a lot about this, um, and I'm quite a... I quite like a kind of traditional gin. I like a tankery or, or a beef eater. But there's actually... There's a kind of trendy gin, or a sort of modern craft gin, that I tried recently that I liked so much that I'm going to pick that one instead. In my job, I get to try a huge amount of, of gin and whiskey and stuff. And I kind of thought, I don't need any to try any more gin. You know, it's all been done. I've had all these different types of gin. And really, uh, are any of them that much better than tankery or, or beef eater? And then I tried this one made by Portobello Distillery. And it's called, they call it their savoury gin. And it's made with... Lots of Mediterranean herbs, rosemary and thyme and lemon, but still with a lot of juniper. I was just like, this is the most delicious gin I think I've ever had. And it's great with tonic water. It's great in martinis. And my wife, who doesn't drink a lot of gin, she tried it. It was like, this stuff is absolutely delicious. And it comes with this beautiful bottle, which is white sort of ceramic, hand painted with lemons and rosemary and stuff. It looks like a a piece of art. So I'm going for that. I'm going for Portobello Road Savoury Gin, which made me realise that there was still more to be discovered in the world of gin. It is an extraordinarily beautiful bottle. And also, um, am I misremembering, but there's an important moment in the history of gin that comes from the use of ceramic bottles by Tankery, was it? I think they were some of the, they were about the first to bottle their own gin. So it meant that you were guaranteed it was tankery rather than something made with sulfuric acid or turpentine. Sort of early gins. Could you talk about some of the sort of mixtures you might have run into? Distillation is a very, very tricky process because when you concentrate the alcohol, you don't just get ethanol. You get things that are poisonous like methanol and, uh, and other kind of things and, and things that just, just taste revolting. So making a 
high quality spirit is very very difficult it's quite easy now because you have these big columns and you just put it in one end and it comes out the other in the 18th century it would have been very difficult and most of the spirits would have been somewhere between very rough and make you go blind poisonous and so to cover that up they would add lots of sugar often they didn't have any juniper so they would use turpentine instead which obviously is poisonous itself they might even perk it up with a bit of sulfuric acid to give it some tang and then they would add lots of sugar to cover up the fact that it was basically lethal and this would have been sold as gin and it was all sort of homemade by tiny little concerns in Bermondsey or Clerkenwell and it would have been you know very dangerous at the very best given you a, a, a terrible hangover but in the early 19th century end of the 18th century it began to go up market so you had people like the tankeries who were a huge no family from france you had the gordons you had booths and they started making it respectable and commercializing it but they didn't want landlords messing with it so they tankery pioneered sealed containers sealed ceramic containers so you knew you were getting tankery gin rather than you know, Bermondsey Dave's dodgy concoction. <laughs> How different do you think that Tanqueray back then would taste from a Tanqueray you'd, you'd try now? Yeah, that, that, I think that's really interesting. I think it would have been very, very different because, first of all, the base spirit would have had a lot more flavour. Nowadays, you have a thing called a column still, which was invented in 1830 by Aeneas Coffey, which produces a lot of, basically, ethanol, 96% alcohol that doesn't taste very much but in the early days they didn't have that so they would have something that would be a bit like a unaged whiskey so a, a spirit that was heavy lots of character lots of cereal character a little bit rough around the edges probably and then they would have probably sweetened it as well to, to cover up for the fact that the spirit was a bit rough around the edges so the the the, the dry style london dry came in when the spirit quality got good enough that you didn't have to add sugar to make up for the fact that the 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 base alcohol was a bit rough if you could travel back in time just to the purposes of tasting one drink as it would have tasted back then what would you go for oh god that's a very good one i suppose the sort of the really interesting one would be i think without getting too technical there was a thing called phylloxera, which was a an aphid that came from America. And it ate European vines. It ate the roots. It almost wiped out the European wine industry. But they discovered how you could counteract it, which was by using American vines and grafting. So sort of cutting a hole and sticking the European vine in. So you got this, the, the, right, the hybrid is the wrong word, but it was a mixture between the two vines and that's what they use over 90 percent of the world so bordeaux is planted with american roots with european vines but before 1880 they were in their own roots and apparently the wines tasted very very different and you, you still get bottles of i don't know 1879 lafitte or something and everyone just goes oh well you can tell that's the pre-phylloxera that is why it's lasted so long. So I'd love to have gone back and tried 
Bordeaux before they changed the vines. But I suppose everything as well. Sherry, port, they would have all been probably quite different because the vines were different. But also when all the vines were replanted, you lost a lot of grape varieties as well. Before there were there were lots of little ones that were dotted around the vineyard. And then when they came to replant, they were like, okay, what works best? We'll just plant Merlot and Cabernet or we'll just plant something else in Portugal, Tariga Nacional. But before they'd have like a hodgepodge. So the sort of character of the wines would have been very, very different. So I'd like to get back in my time machine and try some sort of mid-19th century Bordeaux to see how different it was. The end of each chapter in your book, Empire of Booze, you, you do a really useful thing, which is listing drinks that people can try to get a flavour of what it is you're talking about or get as close to what they would have been at the time. So things like Guinness Foreign Extra Stout as a close approximation to what those stouts would have tasted like. Or there is a company that make Old Tom Gin, which would have been the sort of pre-London dry flavour of gin. So I found that very useful, even though, Henry, we must sort of wrap you on the knuckles for a little bit of disdain about uh, regular Guinness, which is the most chosen uh, drink here at the Moon Underwater by quite some margin. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind a pint of ordinary Guinness. If there's nothing else available, I'll have Guinness. If I'm in Dublin, I'll, I'll drink Guinness. It's just, I think that Guinness is probably a pale shadow of what it was until very recently. Until the 60s, they used to send it out, aged Guinness in one barrel, young Guinness in the other, and the landlord would mix the two. So you'd have like what was called stale beer, which was the aged stuff that was strong, had a lot of flavour. And you had the mild stuff, which was foaming and fizzy. And the landlord would mix them to his own, to how the customers wanted. And that, that classic Guinness head that you, is now done from nitrogen used to come from the mixing of the two. I'd love to have tried a pint of guinness in the 1950s in dublin i bet it was well it would have been very different the other thing that's so interesting in the book is this fashions and styles and the way some drinks kind of went out of style and never really came back like there's a big chapter about masala wine and a chapter about sherry and about how sherry was once so incredibly popular but by the time of the 90s it's it's kind of joke in fraser isn't it that they drink sherry because it's so unfashionable but why do you think those kind of tastes change so much i mean i don't think i've ever had sherry <laughs> you've never had sherry no i'm so sorry well, do you know, it, it's in um you had william boyd on and it's in any human heart when the chap is you know he's reaching the end of his life and he's eking out his pension the perfect thing to drink so you can feel like you filled yourself up and had a proper drink but without spending any money is to get a half of lager and a schooner of harvey's bristol cream and then you have those you don't want anything else to drink after that I always remember that from any human heart. It's hard to say why drinks go in and out of fashion because whiskey was very fashionable in the 60s, very unfashionable in the 80s and 90s when vodka became fashionable. And now whiskey is now very fashionable again. So it's hard. I think it comes from, it's not something from on high. It's a sort of more of a grassroots thing that affects what's fashionable and what's not. I wonder if if a drink sort of takes its foot off the gas in terms of its marketing. What happens is it sticks with the last generation that it was appealing to. So then 20 years down the line, you don't drink sherry because your nan drinks it. 
So you you you're worried that if you ordered it at a pub or bought a bottle for a party, your mates are going to what? Why are you drinking sherry? Do you know? And and as someone who has drunk quite a lot of sherry uh, in in pubs and at home, I've definitely felt that. And kind Indian of, restaurants. And Indian restaurants, <laughs> I have uh, have felt that uh, slight embarrassment, which is why now you get like we've discussed before, sort of. Aperol is rebranding itself and mm. all of these sort of liqueurs and aperitifs, uh, uh, Disarono, they're all trying to be cool because otherwise they just sit on the shelf at the back of the pub gathering dust. I think that's just it because my parents' generation, they were rebelling against their parents and their parents all drank whiskey and sodas and gin and tonics and things like that. For my parents' generation, they were from the Elizabeth David generation. So for them, it was all about France. It was all about muscadet and sancerre and things like that so i remember at christmas all the old family members they'd be like whiskey whiskey and soda gin and tonic please my parents were like oh i'm having a glass of you know having a glass of bergerac or something and they felt they were very, you know, being very modish by drinking french wine so i think that's just right well i think we're going to be touching on this subject again uh well certainly the subject of one of your choices in the moon underwater pub library so let's head over to the leather area of the pub there's nothing sexual about it really is just <laughs> just books yeah it's brown leather i mean the whole bdsm world they never got into brown <laughs> it's always black isn't it oh that's interesting mm. so yes i'm gonna read a, just a, a small extract from henry's book empire of booze this is the, the the beginning of the chapter on gin and gin palaces it's so great because obviously gin palaces inform a lot of what we th- we think of as pubs now and, and and one or two pubs in london were former gin palaces so this is a lovely uh, description of a pub i'm sitting in the viaduct tavern fabulously ornate pub near the old bailey in the city of london it's one of those places that makes you marvel at the splendour of the Victorian age that puts so much pride into something as prosaic as a pub. Compare it to the modern minimalist craft beer pubs that have started to spring up over the capital, which are really just beer shops. The fug of warmth, beer and mulled wine in the pub on a cold December's night was intoxicating, but that's nothing compared with the baroque splendour of the interior. The bar is polished mahogany surrounded by etched glass, The beaten metal ceiling is high and the walls covered in elaborate frescoes representing commerce, agriculture, science and fine arts. The first three are essential to the production of gin, the last less so. Gin is why this place exists. It's now a pub owned by Fuller's, the Chiswick Brewery, but it was originally built in 1869 as a so-called gin palace. It's the last surviving actual gin palace in London, although up the road is the Princess Louise, which was built in the gin palace style, as is the Red Lion just off German Street, a symphony in etched glass. So there we go, a little bit about gin palaces from Empire of Booze. I could be in uh, 20,000 streets under the sky. Yeah. I could be in Hangover Square. (laughs) I could be in Stella Gibbons' novel. It's just, yes, please. Why was there that kind of elaborate Baroque style then? Why why did that come about at that time? It's actually, I mean, we think of them as quite cosy 
sort of, you know, um, comforting places. But they were actually, in some ways, quite sinister because they were designed rather like a Las Vegas casino to just sort of blind you. Yeah. And you'd be there sort of shuffling around the outskirts of the city. It would be cold and dark. And then you saw this blazing light and you'd go, I'm going there. And then you would, they would sell you gin and ruin your life. Um, so it was... Yeah, they they were built to entice people to spend money. I suppose that's what all advertising was for. But if you just imagine you live in some sort of little basement in Clarkerwell and you can't afford the heating, you're shuffling back from your job, you see this gin palace. It's going to be tempting, isn't it? You talk about how for people who were living in the most extreme poverty imaginable, sort of unimaginable poverty to our sort of modern standards, the price of gin made it so attractive as a way of just escaping life and I think at one point you said a, a gin palace could take in the equivalent of £20,000 a night yeah and that was at price though that those prices yeah even at those cheap prices because it was cheaper than beer wasn't it at one point I think so yeah yeah I think it was, well, it, was yeah, it was cheaper than just ordinary beer it's sort of interesting to sort of relates to the modern argument about minimum alcohol pricing because the increase in the price of gin did sort of end that Hogarth-style desolation. And, you know, Scotland's got the minimum pricing and we're seeing that that is improving some of the strain of um, alcoholic-related disease in their health service up there. But there's big sort of opposition to it. And you think about sort of being able to get a bottle of vodka for a tenner, how much difference could be made to the strain on... Uh, public services were that to be increased a bit i think the problem with that is that there's a lot of people who are just spending exactly what they were or buying just as much as they were but they're not spending it on food so it actually makes it worse so there's that argument very interesting stuff i have to say it's weird when you look at it like that because you know obviously they are beautiful places but it's basically in the modern world what, what would it be like a palace for taking spice in or, or crack cocaine or something <laughs> you know what i mean it's so weird well we don't just have a library here we have uh, a jukebox as well and you did mention that you're a specialist in in pop music up to 2002 uh, i always like it when someone's taste in music just stops at a, probably about the age where they were about 25 because mine stops dead in 2005 Right. Uh, pretty much not listened to any new music since then but what album would you like to add to the moon underwater jukebox oddly i'm not a big fan of music in pubs i was listening to, a, to another one of your podcasts and there's certain places that really suits having loud music playing but there's a there's a pub on wardour street the ship where they always seem to have like really loud sort of rock rock music playing and it sort of suits it. it's in soho that's fine. Queen used to go to the ship when they were recording their second album. Did they? The ship on Wardour Street was one of the pubs that the artists who were recording in the studio, I can't remember whether, it, I think it was Trident, the studio, uh, would go to the ship and sort of Elton John would go there as well, which just seems so nuts now. I mean, imagine going to a pub in Soho and seeing, I don't know, Chris Martin and Ed Sheeran and uh, Taylor Swift just having a drink. <laughs> yeah. Be Beatles recorded in Trident as well. Did they? So I think there's definitely a time and a place for music in pubs, and there's some pubs that do. But in my pub, I don't think we'd... 
I, I don't really want pop music playing. And I really don't want music you can sing along to because the problem is that you find yourself sort of singing along and it's kind of stops conversation. So I think it would have to be something instrumental. I really like jazz, but you have to be quite careful with jazz because it can be a bit jazzy. So you don't want sort of Miles Davis bitches brew or something with all the sort of discordant noises and things. So I think I'm going to go for, for Bill Evans, sort of early Bill Evans, where it's just beautiful, beautiful piano, the amazing double bass. You know, he had the Bill Evans trio. Waltz for Debbie, I think, is probably probably the most famous album that they made. It's so beautiful and it's something that you can have on and find yourself just sort of carried away with it. But it doesn't take over. You don't stop talking and have to sing along. I've never been to a New York jazz club in the 50s, but that's something I'd love to have been to. And it just has that sort of feel, you know, kind of lamps at the table, Johnny Walker on the rocks, Bill Evans trio. So, yeah, I think I, I think I'd go for that. As chosen by Adrian Charles as well. Oh, really? He's got good taste, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill Evans, yeah, it's great. Do you know the piece? It's called Peace Piece. It's a really beautiful piece of music. Is that on the album? Because I don't really listen. To, I don't really know what the songs are called. I just put them on. Because I've got quite a few. I've got to I've got the Tokyo Concert one. I've got Waltz for Debbie. I've got At the Vanguard. But I don't know what any of the tunes are called. Yeah. Funnily enough, I, I inherited them all from my Uncle Peter when he was very, very into jazz. And he used to go to Ronnie Scott's a lot in the 60s. When he died, I just got this sort of huge stack of jazz CDs, which I've just been kind of plowing my way through. And um, it's sort of Bill Evans who's who, who's my favourite. Yeah, it's beautiful. Kind of meditative stuff as well, yeah. isn't it? It's about the only music I could write to. Most normally I have to have absolute silence. Well, not absolute silence. I've got children running around up here. But um, <laughs> that's the ideal. But, you know, a bit of Bill Evans can help me write. I'm going to put on a bit of Bill Evans tonight, I think. It's just what I need. Have a listen to Peace Peace. I'm going to, I'm going to look up Peace Peace because I probably know it. I'll have a piece of Peace Peace for some peace. And also, this is very tangential, but there's a very nice Pat Metheny song. Pat Metheny and Lyle Mays. And it's called September the 15th. And that's because that's the, the date Bill Evans died. And it's their tribute to Bill Evans. And that is something else. That's a beautiful piece of music. Well, we're all learning. We're yeah, laughing. laughing we're and learning. learning. <laughs> right then, well, we're going to be listening to a lot of Bill Evans and Pat Metheny. But you've got one last choice, and it's your wild card choice. What are you going to go for, Henry? I'm going to go for a bottle of Graham's 20-year-old Tawny Port. Ah. I thought Port would make an appearance here, yeah. You've got to, got to have the Port. Well, Port, a bit like Sherry, is one of those drinks that seems to have been slightly left behind, despite its remarkable tastiness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think port, port and Sherry. I could be a booze writer, do you think? Yeah. With phrases yeah. like that. Remarkable taste. <laughs> but in terms of like comforting, sweet, warming, 
I don't know what there is to not like about port. I mean, I stopped drinking it because I would just get through it too quickly, especially white port. Christ alive. White port in a pint glass on ice. I don't think it was ever designed to be drunk like that, but crikey Moses, it goes down quick. You sound like one of the guys in Henry's books who comes riding in on a bear (laughs) in the wig party or something. (laughs) But tell us a bit about why you've chosen port and also the remarkable place it has in the history of of Britain and Britain's booze. Well, I think you're right with port. It's just I think sherry could be an acquired taste, whereas port is just, you know, it's sweet, it's strong. It's delicious. And it's just got such a great story. Port comes from the classic problem of wanting French wine, but being at war with the French, which is basically what the book's about. The book is really like almost all English history or British history. It's about our relationship with the French, even though it's ostensibly about Britain. You can't really get you can't really define England without France you know the two or so 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 port is the answer to what do you drink when you're at war with the French again you go to Portugal which is uh has been England's oldest ally since since the 12th century so you had merchants who would go over to northern Portugal to the vineyards around the city of Porto which the English call O Porto meaning the port and they would buy the wine from there and I don't know if you've ever had Vino Verdi it's light it's acidic and they also make a red one it's quite nice but it doesn't it, it probably didn't travel very well so it arrived back in england it may have been transported in goat skins it would have been acidic tannic not very dark and people absolutely hated it and there were all these poems about how awful port was the scots in particular absolutely loathed it so port had a very inauspicious start and it was so different to the kind of wonders of what we think of as port. But gradually people went up country to the other side of the Douro Valley, which was a huge adventure from the city of Porto. Porto is a bit like San Francisco. It's rainy, it's cloudy, it's, you know, it doesn't get a lot of sunshine. But you go over the mountains and it's baking hot, it's dry, and it's a great place to grow grapes that develop a lot of sugar. In fact, you know, much more than they would do in Bordeaux. And gradually these wines started coming back over the mountain, which people loved. And this became port. And most of the time, these probably would have been dry wines rather than sweet wines. But gradually the kind of the English got a taste for the sweet ones. So they started adding brandy to the wine while it was fermenting. So they used to add a bit after it had fermented, which apparently helped it travel but they started adding to it while it was fermenting it killed the yeast and you ended up with a sweet wine and it was it became this incredible cultural sort of cult drink in England and what they discovered is if you were a kind of country squire you'd buy your bottle of your your bottle your barrel your pipe of port which is 550 litres and it would turn up and you'd get your servant to bottle it. So he would, you know, put it in a bottle, hammer the cork in, put it in your cellar. And they discovered that over the years, it went from this incredibly powerful, sweet, tannic, alcoholic wine. It mellowed and became something sublime. So vintage port, ageing port was discovered accidentally. 
and it became you know a, a very kind of english an english tradition so you would you know, buy port for your for your children you would buy port for people and you would keep it 20 years 30 years until it was ready to drink and this you know this is a wonderful thing a wonderful tradition but it's a bit of a bore you know you have to buy it in advance you have to wait 30 years then you have to drink it. it requires an awful lot of patience or you could buy it ready aged but it's full of sediment you open the, the cork it's full of sediment you have to be very careful pouring it so tawny port is aged in a barrel and it sits in a barrel like sherry for 20 years 30 years however long and they let it oxidize a bit so it loses its color so it becomes tawny color hence the name and it develops these wonderful flavors of sort of cooked strawberries walnuts almonds that kind of stuff and then the companies like graham's they blend it into an average age 10 year old 20 year old 30 year old 40 year old and then they sell it in the bottle ready to drink and it's sort of pretty much one of those satisfaction guaranteed drinks you will not ever be unsatisfied with a bottle of graham's 20 year old but the very best thing which is why i've chosen it for the pub is that it basically doesn't go off so you know your bottle of sherry that's been sitting behind the bar of a pub it's going to taste awful it's been sitting there for two years no one drinks harvey's bristol cream anymore but your bottle of graham's 20 year old will probably taste lovely it'll just get nuttier richer um so yeah tawny port you just can't go wrong amazing what a fantastic distillation if you'll pardon the incorrect pun of um port's <laughs> port's history and why you've chosen it uh, one question that I don't know if it would be possible to answer, but reading your book, people were drinking a hell of a lot. What do you think would have been sort of the average intake in units per week of someone in, say, the 1780s compared to the, I mean, the government guidelines now are 14. They used to be 26, I think. How much do you reckon these people are putting away? God, I don't think I could do it in units, but it would be... You know, you drink small beer during the day, so could a weak beer rather than water. If you lived in a city where you probably wouldn't be able to get, I'm thinking of the kind of Georgian age, so you'd be drinking that. Probably drink some stronger beer during the day and in the evening. Well, I, I have no idea what it is in units, but there's a great story about William Wilberforce, you know, the great abolitionist, and he had this, um, he had this Christian awakening and he decided that he had to leave behind his dissolute life and was going to stop gambling and drinking and stuff. So he decided, he said to himself, I'm going to cut down to only six glasses of port a day. <laughs> so that was basically cutting out the booze, only six glasses of port a day. So an awful lot of people would have been completely pissed, even, you know, houses of commons, big holders of the sort of the major offices of state would have been hammered most of the time. And there's also that thing in the Navy where it was almost, you know, desirable for sailors to be a little bit drunk. Not not drunk, but to have access to alcohol more or less throughout the day. It was kind of desirable for that to be the case because, you know, they, they got along with each other better. I don't know. Yeah, I think, well, I think it kind of probably made up for the bad food. Yeah. I think people... 
were probably not absolutely hammered. But also, you know, you didn't have cars or, you know, machinery and things like that. So you probably didn't need that kind of precision in your everyday life. Mm. And don't forget, you know, they were successfully prosecuting wars against Napoleon. So, you know, they must have been doing something right, despite the massive alcohol intake. Fascinating stuff. (laughs) Well... We've got a few more bits of business uh, before we let you go back into the other realm, Henry. The first of which is for Patreon subscribers only, and that's Henry Jeffrey's Dream Pub Companion. So if you want access to this choice, head over to moonunderpod.com to support us on Patreon. Every single subscription is greatly appreciated. For those Johnny-come-fly-be-nightlies who choose not to, that's absolutely fine, but we'll see you back very shortly. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, we return to you. Johnny Come Fly Be Nightly. And what a wonderful experience it was to chat to Henry about his dream pub companion. But two bits of business before we let you go now. First off, what are you going to bar from your dream pub? You're barred. It's a tricky one because I've had some really happy moments with my eldest daughter in the pub. So I was going to say children, but I, my my. my eldest daughter Helena who's now 11 we used to go to the pub a lot in fact my proudest moment we were living in South London she she still does have quite a strong South London accent and one day she said to me she came up to me and she was like dad should we go to the pub and I just I was like this is brilliant I've never, never been more so I couldn't ban children though I would you know some children you don't want them in the pub so I'm going to say mobile phones I think it, it, it would be great if we could all just you know just stay off the phones while we're in the pub. Yeah, it's a very good choice. I'm guilty of that myself. No, no, I'm, I'm totally guilty of it. I'm horribly addicted to mine. And I just think you could just leave them at the door, not use them, chat with people, argue over, you know, football trivia without actually looking it up. So you can just talk about it. 
And also, I think, especially if you're in the pub after working hours, I can understand someone at lunch maybe needing to check their phone if they've popped out for a lunchtime pint. But the day is done. Let's give it over to the public gods. (laughs) Hurry up, please. It's time. So just to remind everyone, in this pub, you have on draft Timothy Taylor, Kentish Pip High Diver Cider, 4.8%. You've got bottles of Campari and Martini Rosso, Johnny Walker Black Label and Portobello Distillery Savory Gin, your spirits. On the jukebox, we've got Bill Evans, early Bill Evans, potentially Waltz for Debbie. And Graham's 20-year-old port is your wild card. Uh, But what are we going to call it? What's the name on the sign? Well, I'll I'll have to name it after my my daughter. uh, My eldest daughter, Helena, always talks about how she's going to open a pub with her best friend, Georgina. And they're going to call it the black and white striped unicorn. So I can't really (laughs) go for anything apart from that. Oh, lovely. (laughs) I think that's that would fit very well to be on the same street as Emma Inch's choice, which is the blue fox. Am I right, Robin? Yes, I think so. Which yeah. Emma's daughter also came up with. So the black and white striped unicorn. Well, Henry, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for giving us your time and coming over to the correct realm to take your seat in the moon underwater. And I recommend Henry's book, Empire of Booze, to everyone interested, not just in alcohol, but in the history of all things British. So we bid you adieu. Your pub is with you for whenever you need it the most. Thank you, Henry Jeffries. Uh, Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.